Welcome to Direction Correct, a Beeplings podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Joseph David. You can go like actually watch like a two-hour YouTube video earlier this week about how to how to create your own LLM, and it's not that complicated, all things considered. You know. Well, I mean, like, what are we talking about here? Like, they give you like the corpus of data, and like, then you can go build the platform on top of it, or like they yeah. give you all the ML tools, or what, what is it? Well, so like. And Joseph, I know you're here, but we're just kind of digging through something. Um, So the goal is it's the data itself that's valuable. It's not going to be the model. The models are already like very open source for the most part, at least the techniques of how to build the models. And so it's how to build your corpus of knowledge. And the two corpuses of knowledge we have is one is about this thing, like we're scraping like Harvard Business Review articles and academic articles and dogs and all that kind of stuff to create recommendations. And then the other corpus of knowledge is just literally employees' own data sets from like their HCM, their ATS, and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Joseph, you're in your cabin in San Francisco, right? Taking all this in? (laughs) Right. Just me and my lodge in San Francisco. (laughs) This This is possibly the most unique Zoom background I've ever seen. I love it. My, uh, our work wants us to have like very, I, I don't know, like you, everybody has unique ones. So yeah, it comes with the territory. <laughs> well, it's like the metaverse, right? Like eventually we're all just going to be like sitting in a meeting and it's going to be like, you know, a dragon next to a pirate next to an amoeba. It'll all be normal. And then you take your goggles off and you're just sitting in your guest bedroom. <laughs> yeah. Well, didn't, didn't you have a question about that, Joseph, that you wanted to ask? I, I was just saying, and this does not have to be a topic uh, by any means, but I was curious to get your guys' view on like metaverse. Do you think it is a thing of the future or do you think it's just like kind of this flash in the pan fad right now and a thing that will never take off? But I was curious Whoa, to I mean, hear what you guys think. Yeah, we haven't like introduced you, but like you worked at Facebook, right? Or, you know, mm-hmm. what is essentially now meta. Uh, so you probably have like great insights on this sort of thing. Uh, my take is I, I, I'm growing to the idea. I, I think that that's where we're really going to be in the future. And in fact, the future may already be here. It's just a shitty version of it. Right. <laughs> so like we all have like our online selves and like the sort of persona that we play. And I'm in an office with, ostensibly zero people right now <laughs> I'm, I'm alone anyway everything's virtual as it is my thing is uh i don't have like a big costume on you know that uh can fly around the room or anything like that yeah i think yeah. i think it's going to be follow this kind of like the same adoption of most new technologies where in the consumer space it's going to move faster than in the you know b2b type space and and so what i see is it's going to be super hot for porn and video games in the near future. <laughs> like yeah. super hot. And then the eventually with that, and, and eventually when that is pervasive enough that like all the normies get, get in touch with it, then eventually it's going to move into like the knowledge workspace and the training space for, you know, frontline type of jobs. Um, but I, I don't know if there's ever a day where you never have an analog type meeting but I think it definitely yeah. could be uh, additive rather than, you know, something that just completely replaces everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I also think, you know, the notion of today, 
think of how much time people spend on their cell phone anyway. So like, yeah, they, the resistance that some people think of like going more and more digitally, it's like, well, we're already kind of in that world. Um, and so the fact that it could be more consuming is certainly like possible and it's likely to happen as soon as there's more utility behind it. We're probably already in the metaverse. I, I think we are. I think we are. I don't know if we've uh, we, we can really fathom what it's going to look like in its realized form. It is going to evolve clearly too. Uh, like, is it going to look like oh, what was that movie? It's like Hackers with Angelina Jolie, where they're like flying around the computer system. Is it going to look like that, or is it going to be? I, I the metaverse still is. It's kind of cartoony and this sort of thing, but eventually it could look pretty realistic. Well, and I hope it goes full cartoony. I would love to play realistic Pokemon <laughs> in the metaverse. You know, that would be amazing. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, y- y'all should come over and like uh, view the guy across the street from me. Like he's in like another condo, and he's, I can see him just in his window with like his little goggles on. It's like fighting imaginary warriors <laughs> or whatever the hell he's doing over there. Nice. He looks insane, but like I'm also wildly jealous. I, I can't lie. <laughs> Probably having a great time. Oh, yeah. When Joseph, I know when you joined the call, we were actually kind of talking about chat GPT and the, you know, generative AI stuff. I know there was something about the singularity you wanted to talk about as well. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, here, I I guess to start, my understanding of singularity is that at some point, technology will reach a point where it's irreversible, right? Like, and it's it's just going to spike in terms of the progression that it can make. Um, do you both have like this post-apocalyptic view of AI uh, to the same extent or or are you a little bit more optimistic? I like Cole digging this first. Yeah, I think you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago about the what is the value of a human being and human knowledge versus computer knowledge, right? And I've been reflecting on it since then. This is going to sound super cheesy, but I I really think that there's something here is if you get to the definition between what is knowledge and what is wisdom, right? Wisdom, I think, is something that is only, you know, really gained through humanity. It's like a human type experience, Whereas knowledge can be gained through any kind of computer system. And so I think if you bifurcate work down those lines, just work, I'm not focusing on like the rest of like the impacts. Um, Things like valuable, like, you know, crystallized versus fluid intelligence. Well, you know, the crystallized intelligence is gained over time through experiences and stuff. And so experience, I think, will continue to matter. Um, And the wisdom that's gained along with that but anything that can be commoditized will be commoditized. And, and so I, I, you know, maybe there are less people with less jobs and maybe, you know, the power law really does come into effect and there's like five <laughs> companies and they're like all hundred trillion market cap. And then we use like a social welfare program to pay for all the other people that are in the metaverse all day long and in this dystopian future. But I don't know if I necessarily think that that's going to happen, but it is a possibility. Well, you guys are already stepping on uh, one of the nerdy articles. So, like, let's go ahead and dig into the nerdery. 
five minutes in this is a new record here uh <laughs> we, we can circle back to her just how like there's like a long conversation about it, but it's titled uh things are becoming strange in the long singularity so the the thesis of the article is for like twenty thousand years of human history, there hasn't been much progress. You know, we're sitting there like with stone tools, like hammering away on rocks and this sort of thing. But things rapidly changed at the Industrial Revolution, where you see this sharp rise in technological capabilities. You know, rapidly approaching this like singularity that you're referring to. Uh, but things have also slowed down a little bit. So, someone that was born at the time that like the Wright brothers made the airplane, they could see like a moon landing but we haven't seen that same sort of like progress over time either uh like if you took off from an airplane in 1970 from uh la it still took you like six hours to get to new york now it takes you about six hours to get to new york we haven't seen like the like sharp rise but they argue that uh this is called like the long singularity and only like one out of 250 jobs that were in the 1950 census has been eradicated uh but this is all going to change with ai in like unpredictable ways it's already passing the turing test and no one really knows what to expect when we do reach a singularity and they argue that flexibility like mental agility is the actual key to adapting yeah and apologies for derailing and jumping into the nerdery within the first five minutes um that was actually my I, i've fault. been it's not your fault okay <laughs> i've i've been arguing that we need to make the entire pod the nerdery no. <laughs> just have well, we crazy can. conversations let's fucking do it let's do it <laughs> so i i think you know i i hear you on that and i would disagree with the notion of like the technological advances like that they have slowed down i think with the emergence of the internet I don't know. It, it kind of like this is just a poor analogy, but it kind of feels like you're, you know, you're like heating up an ice cube and it's at 28 degrees, 29 degrees, 30 degrees. Like there's yeah. no difference. But all of a sudden it's just going to completely change uh, how how everything works. And I think we're, we're very close to that. You know, you can think about people work from home. They go long periods of time before they even meet their coworkers. They can things are a lot more isolated in, in that sense in terms of like remote first. So I I don't I don't know either. Nor do I have a, a good response to that. Um, I think it will be there. It it's certainly very powerful, but uh, there's and there's a lot of good things that can come from it. But there's also a lot of bad scenarios that could happen too. There's a lot of bad scenarios and. Um... You know, it, it took us all this time to evolve into the humans we are today. And, like, I don't think that we're especially suited from an evolutionary standpoint to kind of live in this sort of environment, be it virtual or it's specifically socially isolated, right? Um, it's just not the way we, we, we evolved on the savannas and, like, hunter-gatherer tribes that uh, traded when needed, right? And, like, now we're in this, like... You go and like, you live in your like little metal box and, you know, the sky like me, this sort of thing. But uh, that human contact and just living in a virtual environment just isn't sustainable. Well, I have, I have two reactions to that. A little metal box in the sky would be a great band name. Um, but <laughs> second, second of all is like, I mean, this is we've talked about it before a little bit, but, 
you know, this is why you see the spikes in anxiety and depression and social isolation and people saying, like, I think we even yeah. covered at one point, like, no one's going on dates anymore, like, no, and like having girlfriends and boyfriends and stuff like that. I mean, there's a whole lot of decay that's happening kind of slowly. And I think that that fits somewhat with like the things are getting weird all of a sudden narrative. But, uh, I don't know. So, so, so like, how, how do we, how do we adapt at that point? Like from a people analytics perspective, like if, you know, this like singularity is going to take over our jobs and, uh, uh, you know, change the way we work, what skills or abilities are going to be valuable in the future? Juggling. Juggling's going to be juggling. Just juggling. <laughs> That's it. Unicycles and juggling. Robots can't do that yet. Um, <laughs> I, I think going back to your earlier point, it's going to be a lot to do with intuition uh, and, and not so much just pattern recognition, but there's going to be still an instinctual like business need to to make decisions and like drive based on that and not just purely based on on patterns. Um, you know, I've, yeah. I've kind of had like these wild hypotheses about like how this how it'll impact the working world, like people are, will probably feel a lot less loyal in a sense to a company when they're working remote because frankly, their environment doesn't change. They're going to be still working from the same room or, or like we work office uh, job to job and their coworkers, if they don't know them in person, they, they probably won't have as strong relationships. Whether that's good or bad, I mean, that, that we'll see, right? How, how things will play out based on that. Yeah, I've got a riff on that. We we noticed when we recorded a live podcast is like I do like live virtual sessions all the time and it might as well be a, just another Zoom meeting, right? But when you speak in person in front of a large group of people versus just one-on-one, it, there is a qualitative difference there. So imagine you're you're essentially, if you're switching jobs, you're just importing from one Zoom meeting to another Zoom meeting. It's like, ah, no change. You know, and so I, I totally jive with that notion, Joseph. Yeah. Well, I mean, like with that said, like the ability to effectively communicate to other people, like some sort of like uh, mental agility, comfort with the ambiguity if things are going to change so rapidly, uh, creativity, openness, all these sort of things are going to be a premium, definitely. While that well, value me, of let like, me, let me crystal, crystallized your... intelligence, like so, can be so eradicated. Yeah. Let me introduce Joseph real quick, and then we can kind of figure out where we go from here. Um, so Joseph Daly uh, graduated from University of Minnesota. In the last 12 years, has been doing a variety of operational and analytical things. Most recently left Facebook in 2019 to join Coinbase, where he managed the people and talent analytics team, and more recently joined a small blockchain startup, which I'm really excited to talk to you about. Um, the other thing that you recently did is you moved from San Diego, California to Minnesota in the dead of winter, which smart <laughs> move, buddy. Way to go. Yeah. Well, let me let me add some context there. So I moved to California in like 2012, got introduced into the whole technology company um, circuit and, and lived in a couple of different places. Uh, met my wife in the Bay Area. So I lived up in the Bay for like six years. Uh, and then once everything went remote, her and I moved down to San Diego, uh, which is where she's from. So we lived there for a year. And then, you know, housing housing prices in the Midwest are a little bit more uh, appealing than what they are in 
San Diego or any part of California. So when we would look at, you know, we can live in this great part of town, uh, right near a lake and great schools and all that stuff. Um, it was appealing, but somehow I convinced, uh, she's never dealt with a winter before she's San Diego and only lived in the <laughs> Bay area before that. So somehow I pulled that off. Turn it up to 11. That's quite a winter to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been, uh, it's been a shock to the system, but overall, no, we're, we're enjoying it. Well, that's amazing. Well, I know, um, kind of going back to the point from earlier about like a good band name. I think you're you're a little into uh, different kinds of rock and, and metal music. I, I'm going to ask a controversial question. Very, yeah. very controversial. The new Linkin Park song, is it a banger or not? Because I'm freaking in love with the new Linkin Park song that came out. I don't know how you release a song after a dude is dead, but it's amazing. It's It's not for me. Uh, so we, we have, uh, proven the controversy because I don't agree with you, but, um, I, I do believe to each their own, uh, some people like rock and more emo music than, than I do. Um, I'm more of a purist. So I've seen Metallica in concert close to 15 times. Uh, and yeah, I think people find that shocking because most of the days during work, I have a little bit of a calm demeanor and then they find out that I really like head banging and heavy metal music but uh yeah it's kind of like the yin and yang is lincoln park i metal? like it is like lincoln what? park metal uh they're they're like uh what are they they're like rap rock i don't know what you call it yeah like like new age heavy rock i'd put i mean you could kind of lump them together typically people that like one like the other okay God's clearly not a fan. No, I, I am, I am not a fan. I am not a fan. So uh, no, me and Joseph you both have bad taste. There, I said it. <laughs> all right. Well, what, what we haven't talked about at all, but what I did want to talk to you about today, Joseph, was about what, what is going on in the crypto industry lately. I guess, especially since, like, let's say, post FTX and everything that's been going on. You want to fill us in? Well, let me, let me caveat with saying, uh, I don't know if this would be a sufficient filling in, but I will, I will do my best <laughs> to kind of explain from my perspective. Um, I think, you know, with like emerging technologies, what's, what's interesting right now is what everyone thinks of with crypto is they get so like, like the gate, way drug seems to be investing and trading. Um, so very speculative, but the, the average person doesn't really know much about like the technology or building any utilitarian value to it. So what's interesting right now in like this crypto winter, as they refer to it, is you see a lot of like the bigger players just keeping their head down and building cool stuff. Um, and I think that is what will really like change things in the future. So when, if, and when, you know, uh, things get better in terms of like the market changes and then it starts to come back, I think it will come back in a very loud way, uh, in a very positive way in the sense that, you know, there's gonna be all these new great technologies emerging. There's going to be things that are less primitive and, and more adaptive. Um, one of the analogies so like, wait, that, wait, wait, wait. yeah, go ahead. 
well, what, what what are we talking about? You saying like there's gonna be like new things coming down the pipe, et cetera? Like we're, we're familiar with Coinbase and unfortunately sure. FTX and this sort of thing, but like what does that mean? Yeah, so some of the big technologies, right? Like like uh, not specific to any one blockchain, but like smart contracts, like the idea of how smart contracts work, which if people are are not familiar. The idea is you use technology to fulfill an agreement, right? It's kind of like an if-then statement, and you remove intermediaries from, from the equation. So a vending machine is a perfect example of it, where you know you put in your money and you, you get what you want, and there's no human involvement in there whatsoever. Right. So there's there's so many business opportunities for that. And I think if we look at you know across the, the market and the landscape right now, there's tons of different things that could do that. Um, such as like, if you're, if you're purchasing a home, right, like the whole home mortgage process of how that happens, uh, and all the intermediary work that happens there. And, but what, what's a fair argument is, you know, you, you have like blockchain, what's on-chain data. So data that is on the blockchain that you can execute a smart contract agreement on. And then you have like off-chain Agree, uh, data, right? Like, so how does that work? And I think that's where a lot of the technology is happening right now is like these bridges between off-chain data to on-chain data and making those those connections, uh, as well as like connecting multiple different blockchains from one to the next. I I, I feel like uh, you ever see this like C-SPAN broadcast of like, you know, crusty old white dude in Congress, like, or Senate, like hearing about like, the Hadron Collider, like trying to rationalize it from like a 1960s perspective. Like I, I kind of hear what you're saying, but I, I still don't like fully understand like all these sort of like yeah. intricacies of this, but I appreciate that you do. <laughs> and like, there, there's a world of possibility that will be our future in the near term. You know what? I, it's I, Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I, I'm tracking with most of it. So you, you are making sense at least Joseph. Um, I did want to maybe even dive even a little deeper if you're okay with it. Um, let's talk about smart contracts. And one of the things that I was excited about bringing you on is to talk about, um, although this might not be being done right now, what are some applications of smart contracts and the blockchain in people analytics or in HR more generally? Yeah. So this is, this is a great question. Um, I would say, so So think of this, right? If someone uh, receives a performance bonus, let's just, just use this as an example. So if they receive a certain grade of, the, of performance, then they, are, then they are provided with a bonus. So as soon as that performance hits the system, then we would use technology to execute and say, okay, Cole received a transformational per, uh, performance review now we provide him with the bonus and we use compute, uh, computation to completely justify and, and complete that, um, that contract, right? You could, so you could do it for pretty much any type of like employee related, um, you could use it for vesting uh, at the 12 month mark, you could use it for sign-on bonuses, et cetera. So there's gonna be a lot of cool stuff there. I think what, what most, what, often happens is most people don't understand why is that important, which I think is a valid question because they think like, well, I get that anyway. This is just saying that there is a, a contract that cannot be changed that is put forth at the beginning and the terms are completed as soon as, you know, one end of the uh, agreement is completed. 
So coal. Well, can I build on that real yeah. quick? Because I yeah. think this is a really, really important point. Use the like the example I put in my mind is like employee pensions, right? Employers made a contract with employees to pay them out with pensions, and then later on in the future they welched on that contract, right? And when you create a smart contract platform, when you hit certain criteria, it has to be enforced. There is no welching on a contract later. And, and so you think of all like the broken promises employers have made over the years. And frankly, employees might be making to their employers as well, for that matter. But that would no longer happen if you had some kind of enforcement mechanism that's enforced in code rather than in, you know, morality. So like what happens if like uh, these like, tech companies have all their money in like the Silicon Valley bank and they have no money to pay these smart contracts. What WTF? What, what do you do? Yeah. That's this a is fire the right question, reference, guys. by the way. Love the reference, yeah. Scott. <laughs> so then, then you're kind of going down this path of like, well, how, you know, how far can this go, right? To ensure that the, the contract can be completed. So take FTX oh, for multiple example. layers. Gotcha. Yeah, and so if you look at FTX, like one of the one of the technologies in blockchain that's um, received more popularity since since everything happened with FTX is like proof of reserves, which is to say, hey, they're using computation to prove that the reserves are available, not necessarily providing any information that is sensitive, but just saying, yes, this account has more than the um, allocated amount, right? And so that will be one of like the necessary steps. But in order to do this again, and I understand that this is getting pretty technical, is you have to, we have to build better bridgeways from like the blockchain web three data to web two, where a lot of this account data already exists. And that's the big problem mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, and I appreciate that you are not the blockchain guy. You're you're an IO in a <laughs> blockchain company. But thanks for like laying the foundation for us. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, can I, I want to go even one step further because I think this is something Scott and I have noodled on in the past, which is what would it look like if you know in blockchain companies or in crypto companies more more generally? Because from my understanding, most people just still get paid in dollars. What if we started paying people in crypto? What would that even look like? Yeah. Um, well, so for example, Coinbase does this. So Coinbase gives you the option to receive part of your paycheck in Bitcoin. Uh, at least they did when I was there. So mm -hmm. the these options are available. Um, it it would basically be you know your your dollar amount converted at a specific time probably yeah. the day of into one of the cryptocurrencies of your choice. Um, so I, I foresee this becoming more and more popular as time goes on. We're not there yet, uh, but I think in the next five, 10 years, this will be a more prevailing option for many of these companies. And then it can, going back to what we were talking about, can be completely enforced with smart contracts. I think that there was like an NFL player that had his bonus paid out in Bitcoin. I, I doubt that that was a seen as a great decision at this point. Um, but I mean, like talk about like a great recruiting tours tool, especially for like you know, the more technical or like the younger yep. employees that uh, you're looking different companies are looking for different ways to compete. And from like a pure people analytics perspective, 
hey, this is a great way to draw people in. Yeah, we actually looked into this really heavily in my last organization. We looked at both through 401k providers to like allow people to withdraw a portion of their salary and put it into crypto for their 401k, but also yeah, to yeah. take a portion of their salary from their payroll. And both 401k companies and um, payroll providers hate this shit. They don't want to do any of it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. So we really it, what, we ran into so many barriers. What? Why is that? Is it because like there's you know 47 different coins out there, or it's just too complicated? They don't know about it. Like, I think that would like be a old logical answer. The the real answer is they just don't like change, <laughs> right? Like I think yeah, that they're yeah. they like the way that they're doing things. We were a small fish in a big pond, and they have no need to cater to a small fish kind of thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know what? And one of the areas that make things easier is as as you continue to grow more and more remote and have people dealing with different currencies is you can have everything on a very streamlined one currency, right? Uh, or two currency versus paying um, different currencies across across different countries. It's my understanding that uh, these smart contracts, you, you like talk about like a set of like if then statements and put it on a blockchain, et cetera. And like, I'm like, at like 60% of my capacity here, right? Like I'm not fully operational to fully understand it. But like the the world of opportunities also opens up. Like you talk about like data security or uh, hell, I, I don't know. Like once again, we talk about like paying people, this sort of thing. Well, the thing there's, actually, there's many, many different applications. The thing about like certain kinds of blockchains is you you can validate it backwards in time. You know, you know exactly what transactions occurred for how much at what point in time. And that's kind of the whole point of the blockchain. What I'm actually curious about, and I don't even know if you have any opinions on this, Joseph, but like, what would it look like if you had anonymized, like, this isn't the right word because blockchains are anonymized right now, but like blockchains that you couldn't see things, but that like you couldn't see who was exchanging with whom, like there was true um, lack of transparency versus transparency. And, but still would it manipulate um, the data in the same way? Because like one of the big things in the crypto movement is people not wanting to disclose their identity and, and that kind of thing. Well, if you could ever at any point in time in the future, find out somebody's identity, you could go backwards through time and figure out everything that they've ever done because it would be on chain. Like, are there workarounds for that kind of thing? Yeah, there are. I think I think confidentiality is like one of the pressing issues with with all of this, right? Both both in the state of um, staying anonymous or like being transparent about who is making or receiving the payment. So, like, how do we verify the identity of this person? Because there's times that you need to do that. Uh, otherwise, you can go down a whole rabbit hole of dark money problems. Um, and then on the other <laughs> hand, there's there's we don't want to have. Uh, we don't want all of our payment history to be publicly available. So I I don't have a great answer for you because I think it's, it's um, there, there are solutions for it and there's people that are more technically sound than I am on this, but I think this is a subject that comes up a lot and there's going to be availability to um, verify your identity, but at the same time, not, not put forth every single transaction that you've, that you've made. So you'll still have the privacy uh, that you want, you know, in terms of any of the payments that you've made. That 
the verifying the identity is really wild because that essentially means that uh, you could understand someone's complete history and their background, i.e. resumes are no longer needed. You can't lie on your resume anymore because someone would know exactly when you went to school, all this sort of stuff. And I know like a, a lot of well, companies- you can try to look lie, it just won't work. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, I think we're kind of like dancing around it a bit. Like, and we talk about the benefits of uh, crypto or smart contracts, this sort of thing. But like, what what are the drawbacks? There's pros and cons to everything. What would be the drawbacks of these sort of things? Yeah, uh, you know, the drawbacks are going to be there. There's times where contracts like they there needs to be some finessing and some human involvement, right? Like yeah. you can't purely rely on humans. Um, to to execute a certain contract like without certain nuance the other thing is like there if you make it permissionless you're doing that both for the good and for the bad the ver the dark web and and everything like that gets to operate at the same rules so you have to take that into consideration and think about where how, how do you still go about minimizing those problems but but promoting the integrity of the technology at the same time. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, I wanted to switch gears a little bit here just to talk about, because I know you've got a background in people analytics, um, but you know, you had this question about like, what about moving into other product-based analytic, analytical roles? Um, did you want to talk about that at all, Joseph? Yeah, so well, maybe I'll, I'll set it up, but I would love both of your opinions on this. Um, I so I think for me, like this is this is more of a general statement, but I often find people that you know in people analytics, they they kind of give this notion of like they fell into the space or whatnot, but mm -hmm. in reality, there's like this personality trait that comes with it where you're often very analytically driven in the first place. And like that might've steered you down this path to be into a data-driven role in the first place rather than just like randomly falling into any number of roles. Um, so for me, like I, uh, and when I, when I left Coinbase, I was also um, entertaining like product analytics um, and, and some more business analytics type roles because I enjoy like, relying on data to solve problems and like building the, the technology and the infrastructure to do that more than more than just the, the HR space. Um, I enjoy the HR space. I think it has a lot of fun problems, but I enjoy the data part of it first. Do you tend to find that there's like many transferables in people that either people that you've met or the types of problems that you know, are solved within people analytics to a more product analytics type role? What do you think, Scott? What do I think? Uh, that question didn't go the way I thought it would. So, so it sounds like uh, you, Joseph, you see yourself like, like as a tool builder. Like you take the data and build something that produces a outcome on the back end. And that resonates really well with me. Um, I think that people analytics itself is a broad space and there's room for a lot of different types of people. I, I tell, whenever I talk to like grad students, I tell them, try and figure out what makes you happy. Like what, what do you enjoy doing and try to maximize that for me? Uh, I, there's some exploration 
involved here too. Um, uh, for me, like I, I got exposed to uh, coding in SAS initially, and I, I found that I really, really enjoyed those days and being able to build this entire sort of like algorithm program, however you want to describe it, syntax that would produce something cool on the back end that would normally take you a ton of time manually entering into Excel, this sort of thing. So I slowly started maximizing those sort of aspects and learning more and more. And coupled with, you know, a deep background in psychology and exposure to other folks in IO, it was like a natural fit. It was a natural fit. And I absolutely love what I do, but there's a lot of people that don't. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think it's largely because of misfit. My 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 take on this is your entry point likely leads to whatever exit point you have, right? And so like I know a lot of folks that reach out to me like on LinkedIn and stuff that have like a, a BI background or just a data science or data engineering background in general. Those folks want to get into people analytics just to have an entryway into an analytical field. And they'll probably mm -hmm. use that to parlay into future analytical roles. So I'm not surprised when I see those folks move on into like product analytics teams or engineering, data science functions, marketing, what have you. And then like I think about like the IO psychology, like so that's my background. I'm probably never going to leave, but that's because my entryway was kind of like people analytics is my professional pathway, right? And I don't. I'm not looking to go into marketing. I'm not looking to go anywhere else. This is the destination and the journey at the same time. And, and so I think it just depends on your entry point as to where, if you have an exit point, I know yours is a little like different, Joseph. So do you want to talk about like your entry and exit point? Yeah, well, I, you know, what one thing that you said really resonated and it, it kind of spurred the thought that like it's, it's also, I tell, I mean, it's also okay to not know if like, this is where you want to stay forever too. Like if you enjoy what totally. you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but you're like, Hey, maybe five years from now, I get the itch to do something different. I think that's totally cool too. Um, my, my role was more or less, you know, I worked at a gaming company of like 70 people and I did anything operational and like was introduced to data and I, I had someone teach me SQL there and like it was very primitive bad SQL at the time but like you you have to start somewhere and then slowly but surely mm -hmm. it moved into more recruiting operations at Facebook and then Coinbase and so on so I think my path was you know not in a straight line by any sense of the imagination but with that comes like a lot of skills that are picked up elsewhere and then you get to apply those and it's kind of what separates you and makes you different in the role once, uh, w you know, in, in terms of like when you're actually working in the role now um, and relying on different experiences that you've built over time. So, I mean, like, there's something else that you provided us before we even had the talk uh, that uh, you're into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So like if you got me to a headlock, how long would it take for me to pass out? Not too long. Uh, <laughs> let's see, less than less than twenty seconds, probably. Twenty seconds sounds like an eternity in a headlock. It's, yeah, no, it wouldn't take too long. Um, but yeah, that's that's another one of those things that's like you know maybe the more that you become ingrained into technology and like working remote, I need to do tangible things outside of here. Yeah. 
Um, and so jujitsu has been one of my primary hobbies over the last seven years or so. Um, and it's kind of helped me keep a good balance. So like coming full circle, I think this is like back to like the human condition of evolving in a very physical environment with like real threats. And now we're in a virtual environment where it's particularly safe. Like we've never been safer in human history, but you still, you still need something uh, tangible to hold on to. Like if, if you ever like build something with your hands, like you look back at it and it feels very rewarding as opposed to uh, honestly, like building a regression model, <laughs> you don't get the same sense of accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, Cole and I were talking about this. One of the, artists, the hobbies that I've started recently is like woodworking and it's like, it, it's all in the same thought process. There so, you go. Like I really need to sign off and, and go do something physical that I'm proud of. Well, I'm going to give you something else to be proud of. Uh, you want to pick your own adventure? Uh, give me a random number between 1 and 31. 27. 27. Let's see. What do we got here? Um, oh, okay. So I, I was actually listening to Davey Green podcast, and he had someone on there, and they're talking about the difference between work-life balance so we all got like a general understanding of like you know you spend certain of your time at the office some of your time at the house and um this sort of thing but they were uh um contrasting that with like work-life fit so finding it's not about balance it's about a fit between your working life and your personal life and uh this really resonated with me because like whenever you're someone like really talking about like work-life balance, like uh, you don't really like to work, <laughs> but the job is just another part of your personality, another type part of your uh, human experience, really. Yeah. Um, I think that that has been on my mind uh, more and more over time in the sense of like that intersection between, you know, do what, do what you love be compensated fairly for it, do what the world needs, but also do the things outside of there. Right. And, and kind of make it very holistic and not so much just you're one, overly consumed into one thing. So that's always a battle. And I think like to, you know, to bring back the people analytics part of it as work becomes more remote and we become more decentralized yeah. and people are all over as we get a rise in people in different time zones, it, it's easy to feel like you can't disconnect because you get messages at one in the morning or 11 at night. And with that, like you, there's, there, there will either be a shift in the working place where, you know, cultural norms of like what, what is to what, how you're supposed to operate and whatnot will, will change or people will have to take that on independently and like really shift gears and, and be disciplined to say, at 5 30, 6 PM, I turn off, you know, I turn off my computer, I put my phone away and whatnot, all easier said than done. But, um, yeah. And I, I apologize. I put you into a, a position where like, you're like essentially asked to defend this sort of <laughs> statement, but I think you're totally right. Especially with like the remote work environment, or maybe this like metaverse, we were going to live in, in the singularity at some point you need to be able to uh, incorporate everything into your life. And once again, like technology is preventing this in a lot of ways. I, well, it's, it's enabling and it's like, it's disabling at the same time because mm -hmm. the enabling part is me and my wife, who both work in technology for Bay area companies, we get to live in Minnesota right now. Um, and if we move tomorrow, I don't have to, 
tell anybody I get to just do it and it yeah. doesn't change a thing. So there's a lot, there's a big part of it that's enabling, but you know, with that comes the cons of you are, you are not, your life is more virtual than it was in the past. Um, and you, you may be a little bit more socially isolated. So I, I don't know the solution to it just yet, uh, nor do I know if I ever will. Um, but they're all, they're all <laughs> problems in terms of like the modern working world uh, that, we're, that we're facing today. Well, both of you uh, manage people remotely. Like, what are the drawbacks to this sort of arrangement that we find ourselves in, especially for, you know, developing others and, you know, uh, getting work done ostensibly? I think one of the issues is like versus being in an office, you get a lot of uh, like um spontaneous time right where someone just drops by your desk and you like have a quick chat or you see each other in the break room or whatever and you don't have any of that in like the virtual world so everything feels like a meeting even if it's designed to not be a meeting and even like even if you do things with the intention of like oh let's just socially catch up those are very low priority they're just low priority meetings because it's like oh i have all these other things to do someone wants to grab coffee for 30 minutes on and you know, sit on Zoom, it feels like a very low priority thing, uh, yeah, all things considered, absolutely. or it feels very forced. So that is probably the most difficult part is like, how do you still balance that spontaneity be, when you're not grabbing lunch with your coworkers or you're not grabbing coffee with them and just like walking down the hall? Um, and so, yeah, it becomes tricky. Yeah, you, you basically said it in other words, I was going to say like intimacy, right? And I don't mm-hmm. mean that in like, the lovey-dovey type of way is just like when you're working with a member of your team, you want them to know they've got your full attention, right? And that, that that you actually care about them. You care about their development. You care about what they're saying. You actually do care about how their day is going, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times it just doesn't feel that way virtually. I mean, it or it feels it to a lesser extent. Well, you know, do some more nerdery now. Let's do some more nerdery. We've been doing nerdery. Let's have I just we, totally thrown nerdery. off the agenda as we like are, are circling on different topics. Is this normal? We're this it's is not normal, not but we, normal. We're, we're trying to be more experimental too. So I actually I like it. I I, I, I kind of I'm liking that we we did this. Um well you know what, what I would what, like. You, what I, I would like if uh, Cole like talked about this next article. Yeah, well, <laughs> so I, I've got um I've got one about um, I thought this was really, really interesting. It's called the plateauing of cognitive ability amongst top earners. Um, and so what what these authors essentially found, they did a big kind of population study of the IQ of people and then their income. And what I guess you I guess they suspected is that you would just see the income would keep going up kind of in a linear fashion as the person got smarter and smarter. What they found is once people get above about $60,000 per year, that there's really no more relationship between IQ and, and, and income. And they actually saw at the highest ranges of income, that IQ actually starts to drop a little bit, which kind mm-hmm. of, I don't know if there's uh, like, I don't want to in, uh, infer that there's like a reverse causality there. But I, I have had this hypothesis that I bet you the smartest individuals actually usually make less money. 
Um, so I don't know if that's true or not from this study because they kind of looked at it in the inverse way. But I thought this was an interesting finding. And what, what do you guys think about this? I So I, I think that's fascinating, but probably aligned with what my hypothesis would be is that the smartest people are often very technically, not just technically, but they're very savvy in their domain. The people that are often the leaders of an organization or any group for that matter, probably learned social IQ mm. uh, in the sense of how to lead people, how to um, influence people that may not be reflected in the actual IQ grade. And so they, they learned that whether it was younger or along the way. And like, that is what made them rise to the top of their domain. And then they rely on the smartest people who had the highest IQ to help get the information done. But they, they do that by directing them, not necessarily the other way around. Yeah. And I, I think that um, the most cognitively taxing jobs are not necessarily the most highest paying. Uh, so you think about like college professors or some of these high tech jobs they are not as highly uh, uh, paid as say like CEOs, in the very top echelons. And you're totally right that uh, personality factors definitely come into play, whether it's be able to uh, articulate uh, concisely, this sort of thing, or um, uh, I don't know, a comfort with ambiguity or creativity, these sort of things. The other issue is uh, how they measured IQ. So we've known the value of crystallized intelligence has been dropping for quite a while, especially with uh, chat GBT and hell, just the fucking internet has destroyed what it means to be smart from a crystallized standpoint. They, they measured uh, pardon, they, they measured intelligence uh, in a, it, it sounded like, like a Wonderlick sort of scale. It's like a pro progressive sort of items. But it was like spatial ability and uh, verbal comprehension, this sort of thing, which are, don't get me wrong, there's like positive manifold all over the place with cognitive ability. But I would be really interested to see what they say about just pure fluid intelligence. That to me, that is like the pinnacle of cognitive ability. And uh, I'd like to see these different facets broken yeah. out by. I, th I think that would be interesting. Um, and kind of to, to build on that, I think back to like, the people who I have seen, at least in my own personal life, this is a, there's suffers from selection bias, obviously, um, that make it to the highest levels of income. Usually they're just the people that are like, others are drawn to. It wasn't, and the smartest people I've ever known have usually been much of a turnoff to other people. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, ah, get oh, away yeah. from me. And so those folks with like, again, that magnetism, I find are the ones that end up having the highest level of income. Rather, I don't know what kind of fluid intelligence they have, but uh, like that's the, that's where the magic comes from, I find. Not, not necessarily, well, I know how to do math better than you, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> that's referred to as the Matthew effect in network analysis parlance. So that's the idea that the rich get richer. So like once you create some pull in the network, you get a whole it's a, a preferential attachment to these individuals. And at that point, you have a whole lot more people to draw on an exposure to a whole lot of different evidence. And you become like a major broker in the network and able to identify opportunities early before other people can just because of like your broad network and ability to connect different dots that that could definitely be part of it. And, and likely is, it likely is, especially at the upper levels.
do do either of you guys think that intelligence should be evaluated differently then to like take into consideration social skills and and how you work in a group and not just so much like you know what what however iq is measured oh wow uh you're getting to the uh, theories of multiple intelligences I, I can't remember the author's name but he had like sports iq and sexual iq like all these sort of like weird like bifurcations of like what intelligence is whereas like uh the, the psychometric definition is largely a factor uh, analysis of the different uh, items that go into it. So that's where you get like your crystallized fluid intelligence as well as all the other subsets. It's been a while since I actually looked at it. Uh, in that respect, I don't think that it would factor out as part of something. It would just be the general G, the Spearman's G of intelligence. Like, yeah, if you're a fucking asshole to your coworkers, you're not going to be successful. <laughs> that, yeah. that that's intelligence like you need to be able to uh, uh adapt in some way and maybe that's it just adaptability and openness to others yeah this this research may be out there um but i, I i'm very interested in this kind of like concept of like the magnetism that i was talking about earlier mm -hmm. a lot of folks talk about like eq versus iq and there's many high eq people that aren't magnetic you know, like they're, oh, they're yeah. just nice people. They're empathetic. They, you know, when you, it would be a great person to talk to you if you're having a bad day. Right. Um, but they're not necessarily the person who, who is. And so I, I would be very much more curious. Like, I feel like in t the IQ stuff is a little overprescribed. EQ stuff is gaining in popularity. Um, but I feel like things like this, this is where my curiosity lies. And, and again, there may be research on this, but I, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, I would highly encourage you to go read uh, some of Rob Cross's research around uh, pull in the network specifically. Uh, he also uh, released some research uh, uh, Cross, Pryor, and um, Sylvester 2021 around fast movers. So this idea that uh, some people come into the network of an organization and make rapid gains in their ability to influence because they do generate pull. And after interviewing a bunch of different uh, uh, folks that uh, had this attribute, they found that they go, they went out and made proactive uh, relationships before they actually needed them. So like they go learn like, hey, Joseph, like uh, you, you got so you got a wife and you got your kids and like this sort of thing. And you live in Minnesota. That's so great. And then once you establish a um, um, collegial sort of uh, bond between you. Three months later, I made Godi. He's like, oh, you said something interesting. Like, can you help me out with this? And that's you form these relationships early before they're needed. And that's sort of the feelers that these fast movers really put out into the network and create that pull, this magnetic pull towards them. Other than that, I have nothing to say about it. Well, I, All right. <laughs> I, I think it's fascinating because <laughs> like there's, you know, the, the magnetism, but there, there is a baseline of IQ required for people to have a certain pull. Like no one's, Correct. no one's going to fall, follow like, you know, the, the, the biggest dummy in the room. So there needs to be a certain qualities that you're drawn to. And they're, they're often going to be the things that you don't have, whether there's a more intelligent person mm -hmm. than you, or they're like very, you know, they're the person that lights up the room when they walk in. So there's, there's certain skill sets that they still have to have um, in order to have that quality. 
Boy, you would hope so. We covered some research uh, several pods ago. This usually showed that uh, the biggest factor in the emergence of a leader is just talking more. <laughs> so, it's, so the person that talks most in the meetings, they're the leader. The babble effect. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, Scott, do you want to hit us with the last one? Last one. So this is like a good little bow on the entire great discussion. Like I've absolutely loved this, Joseph. Uh, this is fantastic. But uh, we all love chat GBT, right? We all see like the benefit of it and like we're scared of it as well. But uh, there's uh, two early research uh, findings that essentially show that uh, among, let's see, as college students and I think programmers, that the time taken to uh, complete a task has dropped by 50% for, for the group that actually used it. And uh, in, they saw increased performance as well. So there's probably uh, more findings in the future, but these are the early estimates on what we can expect from this generative AI technology 50 percent increase in productivity does it say is that due to the performance of chat gpt getting better or people understanding how to like interact with it better well, that's a good question it doesn't really uh yeah. break that down it says it's writers and programmers so my presumption was it's helping people write faster by writing for them and it's helping people program faster by writing the code, which kind of gets to a point I made before on the podcast about anybody who's writing now becomes an editor. So that could go for programming <laughs> or being truly a writer. Well, they're talking about students. They're talking about like grade increases. But interestingly, uh, the group that was untreated, so the group that did it the uh, old-fashioned way, i.e. <laughs> you just wrote it yourself, uh, they actually saw like a slight decrease in their grades. Like I don't know if it's significant or not, but it could also show that like uh, grades are somewhat uh, comparative in this way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was so, like, floored by this article. I even went ahead and cited it in, in the article <laughs> I wrote that came out today because I was like, this is, this is really crazy. And I don't think people realize how crazy this, like, I don't know if this effect will hold true over time or if it's just, um, for writers and programmers yeah. and it won't happen for other professions or anything like this. But like, imagine like I, I, I described it to somebody yesterday this way. Imagine if your company doubled in headcount overnight, but you didn't hire anybody else. That's the magnitude of having a 50% increase, like a 2% increase after like a learning program would be considered best in class. And so, I mean, this is truly transformative. Again, if the if the impact sticks and this isn't some kind of outlier finding that you, you know, you do see oftentimes in the scientific process. Yeah, totally. Like, what, what if your training got 50% better overnight, right? What, what if your recruiting got 50% better? You, you would yeah. freak out. You, you think you did something wrong. Do, do either of you guys think that this is going to find a ceiling, let's like compare it to like the calculator, where it can do a lot of information or, or calculation very fast and allows people in mathematics to think about problems like more holistically? Or do you think it's going to continue to get better and better and better and, you know, put a lot of thought workers out of, out of a job? Yeah, I, I got this 
uh, from, I think it's a engineer. He was at um, Intel in the past, Jim Keller, with this concept that there is no such thing as an exponential. There are just lots of logarithmic curves built on other logarithmic curves. And so, you know, you see it start to go up very steeply, but then it levels off. But then another innovation comes on top of that and it starts to go up steeply and then it levels off. And so it looks like a one big exponential curve, but it's actually a lot of small logarithmic curves. And so that's what I see is like the initial bump that we get from this will eventually taper off. But what's going to come after that? That's the big question. Uh, I, I, I was initially like kind of worried, like, oh God, we're all out of a job. And like, this is just going to like shut us all down. Now I, I kind of see it in the other way, just like reflecting on the growth of technology in the past and what we've seen. So now we don't have to like calculate correlation tables by hand and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and it will make us better our jobs. What I do worry about is like uh, the erosion of the underlying theory and ability to do these sort of things without it. To the point, like, if it ever fails for whatever reason, which uh, go to your nearest apocalyptic sort of uh, novel, what have you, we're, you know, F-U-C-T fucked. Uh, and that's that's the end of it. Oops, I was on mute. That's a good spelling, Scott. Way to go. <laughs> it was very subtle. Um, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> this has been amazing. I, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Joseph, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Before I give you the final word, uh, Scott, any final words for uh, Joseph? Uh, Joseph, uh, I was born, I've lived, and this pod made it all worthwhile. Great to have you. Appreciate it. All right. <laughs> High praise. Wow. Kind words. What, what, yeah. You have anything to add to that, Joseph? How do you top that? Um, (laughs) No, thank you both for having me on. This is awesome. It's great, great Friday discussion. So um, enjoyed it quite a bit. It sounds like the feeling is not reciprocated, Scott. (laughs) That's a common occurrence. Just totally left you hanging. Put yourself out there, Scott. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, it's it's good. Sometimes you got to take a risk, you know? I'm sorry. This is cracking me up. Uh, well, you've, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People I Like's podcast with Colin Scott and our guest, Joseph Daly. Thanks for joining us, Joseph. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People I Like's podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostic.